Alright, praise God. It is May the 26th, 2004, Wednesday night. Hallelujah. Praise God. We're going to continue on our study in James, venturing into chapter 3. first two chapters have been power-packed, have had uh, many, many, many nuggets to, to pull out of those. And so continuing in, in chapter 3, we know we studied in, in, uh, in chapter 1, kind of recapping just a little bit. Chapter 1, we went over uh, uh, remaining joyful in suffering, what suffering produces, how to overcome suffering, as well as in, in chapter 2, uh, probably several different topics. Uh, but primarily dealing in uh, living a godly life and having uh, the, the law of freedom at work in our bodies, in our lives. Uh, and that's the, the, the law that we live of or live from. This feels weird. This mic is all up in my face. <laughs> the law that we live from is a law of life, not a law of death. So moving into to verse 3, I mean chapter 3. Taming the tongue. Now, this is James chapter 3, but I did put a, somewhat of a title to this message. What, what 3 primarily deals uh, on is, is taming the tongue, but primarily just the power of the tongue. The, the title of it is going to be Servanthood in Speech. Yes, 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 yes. There's a, there's a lot of things that we can physically do. Um, when we think of servanthood, one comes to mind is you know uh, a, a benevolent act towards another brother, washing their car, taking out their their garbage, doing something primarily in secret towards them, uh, but it's a physical act of of love and kindness. Well, that's absolutely you know something that is is pleasing to God. Uh, it's a it's a demonstration of our brotherly love or love for Jesus. Something that's living, that's active. Uh, definitely not to uh, contradict what we're going to preach today, but what we're going to talk about is what happens before the fruition of that love. If you want to write this down from the very beginning, uh, this will be the heart of it, is uh, the fruit of the tongue is the heart's motive in action. I'll say it one more time. The fruit of the tongue is the heart's motive in action. So if we could, in standard style, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read from there until about uh, James chapter 3. (laughs) Genesis 1. Now, the human, the human race is made up of three different parts. Or I guess the human man is made up of three different parts. Those three parts consist of spirit, soul, and body. Uh, directly correlating to the, the, the Trinity or the Godhead in its entirety, uh, the Elohim. So what we do when we start in, in verse, uh, verse 3, and really, I'm just going to highlight just how many times or, or particularly where it says that God said. And you know the, the subsequent days, you know, I could spend a lot of time on this first chapter, but I'm trying to skim over as easy as I can. But it's actually, I'll, I'll go ahead and just mark them all down. Verse 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, and 24. That's outlining the days, and, and there's a couple instances where it's within that day, it's something else. But what God is doing is that He is speaking something to act or to be. There's an internal thought, internal mindset, and motive that is there brought out of God's mouth and spoken into creation and forms and develops a, a certain fruit or a certain reaction. And eventually, it's a substance of what his motive or his thought initially was. 
we all know that First John, uh, I mean, uh, John uh, one fourteen, you know, the Word became flesh. And that flesh is Jesus. Jesus embodies the Word. He embodies the motive and the heart of who God is. So in that like manner, let's go to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now we know when it says our, that's a, uh, a plural term, meaning to the, the full triune head of God, of who, who God is. But it, in particular, it's, it, it's fantastic that that shows up at that particular spot. He says, Let, let's make man in our image. Going back to man's made up of body, soul, and spirit. So we should therefore conclude that if God operates a certain way, being that he is made up in this manner or in this structure, man is intended to operate a certain way as well. Because we are descendants of Adam. And this is exactly where he's pointing to. But the bad part about it is that because we have a fleshly nature that's corrupted, the way we act or the fruit of our actions isn't necessarily producing life. It produces death in some shape or manner. However, as we begin to draw near to God, we find that the more we act like Him, the more of a similar or exact same type of fruit we produce that He does as well. It's life. Uh, let's go to First Peter chapter 4. bring my easy flip Bible today. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Like we spoke a, a couple weeks ago about intercessory prayer. In order to be highly effective in prayer, whether it's praying for someone else, praying for yourself, uh, those... <laughs> Those two things are are very, very critical. In order to get clear-minded a lot of times, that's why we worship. Whether you play an instrument or you just put on music, is to put out of your mind the things of this world and the the cares and worries and to just relax and chill out in the presence of God. As you begin to fellowship with Him, those things become secondary, minor. They just fade away. Then we're able to to be self-controlled and... As far as our prayer life goes, that goes into not being distracted by any, any outside manners. For me, it was cleaning the house. Just kind of gets distracted in doing that. But also be self-controlled of our fleshly nature. If I can be, I can, well, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. But if I begin to, to be fleshy over a period of, you know, a couple of days, and I'm not having fellowship or communion with God, it's going to be very hard for me to pray. That's why we get into worship, not only clearing our mind, but also putting our flesh down, making sure that we're on right standing with God, repenting for anything that we need to repent of, and therefore we can enter into His presence very easily. And as we pray, we know exactly what we're praying for, what we should pray for, and what His desires to pray for are. Verse 8, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Hmm. Faithfully administrating God's grace in its various forms. Grace, the word grace means what? It's unmerited favor. So, going, I mean, reading that verse as a whole, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace. Also, this, uh, encountering the grace that we have received for forgiveness of our sins and salvation. But also realize that the gifts that Jesus has given you are due to unmerited favor. They did not originate in you, therefore they do not belong to you. They belong to him and for his use to serve others. 
If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. That verse alone will help keep your tongue in, in tight check. I know it does for me. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to Exodus 3. So from that, we know that we have received unmerited favor, a gift, to serve others. And consequently, I mean, right after that, he says, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. Now, that can pertain to someone standing in, in a pulpit, but it also absolutely pertains to everyone who is an ambassador of Jesus. Exodus chapter 3, verse, we'll start in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, he, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was not on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. I think uh, last time Eric went, they supposedly found the, and this is pretty amazing, they found the cousin bush to this original one. How you know, I don't know if they asked it or did what, but uh, it was a, an offspring of it, supposedly. And like anything else in, in the Holy Land, Christians or whoever get a hold to it, they make a shrine out of it. It's, 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 it's quite ironic, you know. They find this ancient artifact, or supposedly an artifact, Tying back into Moses, they build a shrine around it. It's no different than the golden calf. They go down to it and bow to it and basically glorify it above Yahweh God and much more Jesus. Totally missed the entire point. Amazing. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now someone could stop right there and say, well, you see, God does reveal himself to men. He saw the face of God. No, no man has seen God the Father. This was a representative. The, I think with the name Gabriel means one who stands in the presence of God. So more like you saw the representative of God. Some would say, yeah, that was Jesus, you know, before flesh time and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of getting off the tangent, you know, off into the tangent a little bit. But um, just for note's sake, he didn't look directly at God, but was looking at the representative of God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave, because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and spacious land, a land of flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, per, per, Parasites, <laughs> Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of Israel has reached me, and I've seen the way of Egyptians, seen the way Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, out of bondage. So here is this command given to Moses, and basically somewhat of a gospel. A form of good news to these oppressed people. You are now in bondage. I am coming to you with the gospel or the news of freedom. Being freed from this bondage. But Moses said to God, 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, let me, let me go back. Before Moses had gone to the bush, he had moved into Midian because four years prior, he had you know, killed an Egyptian uh, when he saw one fighting his, his fellow Hebrew brother. Uh, basically, his people did not not want him. It wasn't time for him to be their deliverer, so... He fled, fled, fled into Midian, settled there with his, and met, met his wife, settled there with uh, Jethro. Well, it's hard to say that and not think of Beverly Hillbillies. But settled with, with Jethro and Midian, and now has come the time, 40 years later, he's been tending these sheep, and now he's about to tend the sheep of God. Many more in number, but God had been preparing this guy for 40 years. Now, the statement he made there was one out of humility, whereas prior, while he was in Egypt, he didn't exactly have that, that full extent of humility at work in him. There, there's, there's a fine balance between being confident and being prideful. If I get to the point where I'm prideful, a lot of times it falls into one of the three common sins to man, is being proud of what I have done and what I have accomplished or able to do or able to accomplish. Where where the balance is, is realizing, like we said earlier, that the unmerited favor that we receive, the gifts that we receive to accomplish at actions, doesn't come from ourself. It comes from God. So if I'm continually relying upon God to be my strength to accomplish his will, then I can't get prideful. My confidence is in the power of God at work in me. David was confident. Goliath was prideful. He, re- he relied, Goliath relied on his own physical strength. David relied on God's strength. Verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have gone, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? <laughs> then what shall I tell them? He was afraid of, of not being, his authority not being recognized. Same way with us. There's that fear that you may want to tell someone about Jesus, or not even to that extent, being called to do something for God. And what you're looking at is the natural, and one of, one of man's most uh, greatest downfalls is forecasting the future for God. Is placing these thoughts and these actions in line in somewhat of a logical order or in an emotional order, thinking, well, I, you know, I don't know if it's going to work because I know if I do this, this is going to happen. Not stepping back and realizing, wait a minute, if God called me to do something, he has gone ahead of me to prepare the way. If I do what he's told me to do, everything else will fall in line. Does that make sense? Praise God. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, if you just look at those, those words alone, you know, once again, we can't, I can't use a formula. And every time I, I go to perform God's will, I'm going to use you know, this phrase or an excerpt from the word. And just tell people, you know, roll up into some church and say, you know what? You know, God's called me to be the pastor of this church, even though you still are. And I am has sent me to you. When God speaks his word to you, when God speaks his word to you, it's done. (laughs) It's done with the intent that its power resides behind that word in your circumstance. I don't have the authority nor the power to take what God has spoken to me and automatically assume that I can give it to you and for you to apply to your life, unless it's scriptural and in the word, something as a revelation. But particularly what I'm talking about is the will of God to occur in my life. If Jesus called me to go to Houston, I can't expect everyone in Baton Rouge to move to Houston. At this point in time in my life, it's God's will for my life, not necessarily everyone else's. Verse uh, 
Verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of Canaanites, Hittites, and such and so on, a land of flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So he, Moses was far, warned far in advance exactly what the attitude of Pharaoh was going to be when he attempted this. Therefore, once again, acting as a milestone or somewhat of a reference point in Moses' faith, that when he met this opposition, he wasn't shaken by it. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. And they didn't. The Egyptians gave them gold and gave them basically plunder. You know, here, guys, take this, get, you know, go leave. And here, here's going to help, help you leave. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Here's where it gets good, verse 1 of chapter 4. Moses answered. Now, you know, this, this entire section, God has given detailed instructions about what to do and what their response is going to be, but what the eventual outcome is going to be. They're going to take the riches of Egypt, put it on their sons and daughters, and therefore have plundered the, the riches of Egypt. Moses' response. What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you? Somehow he's not getting it. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that you may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. So God was giving him a direct sign. What was the very thing he was afraid of? That the elders would say, God didn't appear to you. He was further embedding in Moses' faith, speaking to him, not just through words, because God had attempted words alone, but speaking to him through signs and wonders. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now, according to uh, later on in the law, if this were to happen, Someone was to be declared unclean. Certain procedures had to be done outside the camp, such and so on. So, there, once again, there's there's symbolism in this. Uh, I wish I could go into it. We'll keep going. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, then they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O oh Lord, I have never seen, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. So once again, Moses is looking at his own capabilities and not at God's. 
particularly what we're revolving around is his ability to use the gift that God was instilling in him at that moment. Listen to God's response. Yahweh said to him, who gave man his mouth? Now, how basic do I have to get about this? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Go back in, uh, in we're not going to flip there, but in John. Or not, uh, yeah, I think it's in John. Uh, you know, Jesus was encouraging the disciples. You know, I'm going to send to you a counselor. When that counselor has come, he's going to remind you of everything I have taught you. The way it applies to us now is that the Holy Spirit, the counselor, is in us to remind us of everything his, really, his spirit has te- taught us through what we've read. If I don't read, he can't teach, therefore he can't remind me of what needs to be said. A couple of times when we would uh, do uh, street ministry, I, in the very beginning, I, I remember talking to people, trying my strength to witness to them, and the words would not flow. I was slow of speech. <laughs> I didn't have an eloquent tongue. So the, the anointing would not flow through my speech. But as I would sit back and let God teach me how to speak and let his anointing flow through me, he would begin to remind me of the scriptures and things would just flow. And I could tell as I would speak, it would hit the mark within that person's life and in their heart. So yielding to the gift is very, very important. It's understanding how it works and who is it coming from. Anytime you're trying to force speech, force witnessing to somebody, it, unless God has previously told you this is what you're supposed to strive after in this moment, this is what I want you to do, then uh, it's, it's very hard to do. Think about it. If you went ahead and did it and God uh, and the anointing really flow through you because you forced your way in through your strength, be very tempting after a period of time and repeated action to take credit for it. <laughs> but, verse 13, but Moses said, O oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. So once again, Moses is still looking at the natural and not, and not what God has spoken to him. Then the Lord's anger burning against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? And that's where we get into Aaron becomes the spokesman, spokesman for Israel, but it's actually Moses speaking through Aaron. Um, but you can see initially, after God has spoken all these things to him, trying to encourage him, trying to give him the revelation, Moses still didn't, didn't get it. God did get upset. Now, he didn't strike him dead. He provided a means to accommodate. But we'll read later on, the one thing, or back in Hebrews, or up in Hebrews, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. If my life's goal is to please Jesus, it's got to start with faith. Faith in what? Believing what he has said. Therefore, I have faith in what I will say to others as well. Let's go to James 3. Yes. James chapter 3. Not many of you, verse 1, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. I've met many, many people that once they become born again, even spirit-filled, I honestly believe they were called to ministry, just not the next week after they were born again. First thing they want to do is get up and, and be a mouthpiece for God. Uh, it, a lot of times it's, it's a lot of zeal and is lacking uh, quite a bit of knowledge. Having the fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. When we speak, we're to speak as one speaking the very words of God or this wisdom. Wisdom is what? Applied knowledge. Correctly applied knowledge. 
it's always uh, an honorable task to be able to speak and encourage and, and do things to a number of people. But it also comes with a great responsibility. So Jesus is calling you to some form of ministry to a multitude of people. It can be even uh, leading worship because in some degree you're, you're speaking to these people and the way you lead worship, how you lead worship and follow the Spirit will affect them and you'll be held accountable or responsible for the way you handle it. So no matter what form of ministry that you have, when you start dealing with the 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 status or not status, but the, the position of a teacher or instructing others, every word that is said can be put under a microscope and you never know how it's going to affect somebody, good or bad. Whenever uh, I was filled with the Spirit, for a while I had a deep anger towards a certain denomination. And I found myself being kind of you know, antagonistic towards anyone who was of that denomination. God quickly, you know, squashed that in me and said, wait a minute. You're getting angry at the sheep for what their shepherd is telling them. Don't be angry at the sheep. Be angry at the shepherd. Jesus never really harshly uh, came against the, the nation of Israel. He came against the Pharisees, the very people that were supposed to be responsible for giving them the words of life and were not. Totally missing it, only having their self-interest in mind. So if you aspire to be a teacher, do a lot of prayer. <laughs> and pray that Jesus prepare you. Because uh, it, it takes some responsibility in correctly handling the word of truth. Verse 3. When we put bits into mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Likewise, you know, whenever my wife wants to control me, she just grabs me by my ear or some little fatty part in my arm and I squeal and you turn the 250-pound man you know, any direction you want to. Verse 4. Or take ships as an example. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body but makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. There's a, a scripture that says, uh, you know, get rid of all bitterness, for it can defile many. How does it defile many people? By your tongue. If you begin to store up envy or bitterness, you begin, it begins to leach out of your tongue and your speech. Though you may never say the direct words about your bitterness, it still is there. And it begins to corrupt others as well. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by men, by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is restless, is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. We have been made in God's likeness. We have, in, like we mentioned in the very beginning in Genesis, because we're made in God's power, not only do we have the ability to express the motives of our heart and then become some kind of fruitful action, there is power in your tongue. There's power to curse and there's power to bless. In some way, shape, or form, we have the power to, I'm not going to say create, but originate certain actions. Uh, someone who has deceitful motives or self interest motives can use their tongue to gain their own way to deceive others to do what they want them to do I can achieve the same goal by being wise as serpents and harmless as a dove using the wisdom of God if someone uh, I mean, take a, a, new, a 
an emergency, for instance, someone has broken into your home and you don't know what to do. Well, part of my instinct is to jump on them and, and beat them up to death. But I want to react in a godly way. As I'm being led by the Spirit, I'm, I'll be, I, by nature, what I've heard of testimonies in the past as well, is for Jesus to give me the words, whether it be to speak to that person in tongues, which will probably do the trick, speak the name of Jesus, and or let me touch on that, the very word of Jesus alone is the embodiment of the power of God, of the kingdom. And I can think it in my mind. That's one thing. There's something unique when it comes off my tongue. I am acting like a little God. I'm partaking in the image that God has made me in a useful manner of speaking this name of Jesus. When we talk about earlier messages, when we intercede for one another, we also take part in that very same power and that act of being in the image of God. And notice where is, for the majority, the strongest. When I've seen God's anointing move, I've seen it move in my life. But it seems to please him more when I go to serve others with my speech and other forms of ministry. If I'm pouring into others, I know Jesus is directly pouring into me. And I don't serve others to just to satisfy myself. I serve others because I know that's what God has required me to do. And it pleases me just to please him. Bottom line. Verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt spring produce fresh water. Let's go to uh, Numbers. Numbers chapter 12. Touching back on Moses again, he is now leading uh, Israel out of Egypt towards the promised land. But notice here the power of the tongue. Now, before we talked about the power of, of blessing as far as examples go, but reading in James 3 is the power of, of cursing and also a blessing. See how it takes effect here. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. Cushites were of a, uh, a different ethnic origin and more along the lines of a, a darker skin. And they, they looked a lot different than uh, the Jews did. So some type of uh, racism happening. Has Yahweh spoken only through Moses? They asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? Now, this is Miriam and Aaron. They begin to become not confident, but prideful, taking credit for what God has been doing through them. Now remember, Moses has been speaking to them and telling them what to say as he heard it from God. Let's see what happens. Uh, hasn't he also spoken through us? And, the, and Yahweh heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. It's like they're being called to the principal's office. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of a cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, listen, to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak? against my servant Moses. They had treated the authority of God in contempt, not necessarily with an action, 
it was just met merely with their attitude and expression of their attitude. Primarily, what would you assume their motive was? Moses isn't worthy to lead this nation. We are. Selfish ambition. Verse 9. The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eating away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, O Lord, O God, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. Take note right there. Now, Israel was in the process of moving out of bondage into the promised land, into what God had called them to. Because of Miriam's uh, disrespect for Moses' authority, the entire plan of God was put on hold. The entire camp had to stop and wait for her to come through a cleansing process. Whenever we begin to use our mouths in the wrong manner, we begin to grieve the Spirit of God and therefore grieve or hinder the will that he's trying to produce through us. Paul writes about uh, uh, husband and wives basically be at peace with one another so your prayers will not be hindered. Same exact principle. It is hard to enter into the presence of God when there's something between you and your spouse. Because there's disorder in the home. May it, may it be minor or, or even great, but there's some type of discrepancy. Until that is settled, then it, it will hinder you getting into the presence of God. Let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 15. Another major point I was getting at with that that case with uh, Miriam is that how long has she been dwelling on this? How long has this motive been boiling inside of her? She may have been used one time to to sing a song and use her tambourine and celebrate as they crossed the, the Red Sea. Maybe a little bit of pride got embedded into her. She saw the glory and the praise of man. I mean, what we see in the scripture is... You know, captions of what happened. What it may not cover is after everything was said and done, someone come up to her. I relate this to, to current day terms. Oh, that was a great song, man. That was beautiful. Oh, yeah. You know, she first might say, Yeah, you know, the Lord gave it to me. Uh, you know, glory to God, glory to God. Repeatedly it happens, and next thing you know, it becomes, Oh, yeah, thank you, thank you. Now, you know, the, the, balance, the balance in that is, I don't want to constantly tell people, it's God, it's God, it's God. Basically like, you're missing the point. There's a correct way to handle it. But what happened with Miriam is that she probably envied Moses' position and the glory from the crowd that he got, the authority that he walked in, that that her and Moses were now capable, because they've been used a little bit, to basically take over where Moses was. That motive had been brewing. She let it fester. It then manifested in her speech and eventually caused her to have leprosy and hinder the plan of God for the nation of Israel. Does that seem clear? Good. Yep, chapter 15, Matthew 15. Mateo 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came, from, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why, don't you, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Oh, my God. They're breaking the law. They're lawbreakers. 
You know, they're, they're, in, in that case, they're breaking every single law and they're disgracing the law of Moses. Hmm. That's what Jesus comes back with. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Mardi Gras. For God said, honor your father and mother. <laughs> I had to throw that in. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. <gasps> that would stop a lot of uh, teenage violence. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right about you when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called to the crowd. Called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Now we saw earlier, Miriam was unclean because of his, her leper's hand. She had to be put outside the camp and therefore hinder the will of God. In the, in the means of, of this as well, what comes out of our mouths can make us unclean as well. Not necessarily in the Jewish law sense, but in spiritual uh, matters uh, as a whole. Verse 12, Then the disciples came to him and asked, Why, do, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Oh, no. Yeah, Jesus was concerned about that because he replied, Every plant that my fa Heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Uh, but, but bottom line, what... There are cases when you might run into to people who are concerned about outwardly things corrupting their inward nature. That may very well be. Why? Because that's what God requires? No. It's because of their weak consciences. Now, I'm not saying you go sit out in bars and, and minister to people. You definitely don't want to put yourself in a place of temptation where you know we will fall into it. But the other thing you don't want to do is is limit yourself to this legalistic law that forbids you to have any interaction or being in the world but not yet of the world. For years, man, I was so legalistic. I condemned other Christians because they, because they saw, like, you know, Roger Rabbit or some, some other menial cartoon. Now, you know, there is a limit. There's a godly limit to what you put your eyes on and the music you listen to. But it's all really according to your faith. Paul addressed this when eating meat sacrificed to idols. You know, he pretty much said, it's, it's okay, it's good, it's meat. And we were offered up to God and given to thanksgiving. Therefore, it's declared as holy, it's clean. But going back to this verse, what Jesus said, it's not what you put in your body, what you put in from the outside in that makes you unclean. It's what comes from the inside out. There's a, an, an old DOS um, or computer term, Giga. Garbage in, garbage out. So if you programmed a computer with garbage code, you got a garbage program. It didn't run, function right. As we begin to put garbage in in us, well then, expect, I mean really, step back and expect you're going to have a hard time with your flesh. It's going to be not as easy to tame the tongue. But as we begin to put in godliness into our system, expect it to be easier to control the flesh and easier to let the anointing flow through us. Uh, not necessarily that the, the disciples were putting garbage in, but in the case where the little boy had a demon, and the disciples went to go try to cast it out, and Jesus came to him and said, you know, hey guys, you know, these kind come out by prayer and fasting, or prayer and supplication. It takes a little more spiritual effort than just waving your, your hand and praying for him or anointing their head with oil, coming back to our current day terms, anointing their head with oil and saying, we bless you in the name of Jesus, we bind and rebuke sickness, and they expect the next day for it to be gone. 
Some things required fighting for. And that fighting for comes through our speech, prayer and supplication, prayer and fasting. We're denying our flesh. We're starting to put godly things in and begin to expect godly things to come out and advancing the will of God. Uh, Let's move on into uh, servanthood. John chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 27. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, the Messiah. And that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. The only man that has probably ever walked this earth that has fully tamed his tongue and kept his full body in check is our king. That's who we pattern ourselves after. Um... You know, my logical mind reads this verse and says he went around quoting the Torah and, you know, how are you doing today? Uh, do not eat sacrifice, you know, meat sacrifice to idols, you know. No. He, he was the word, and as his actions came out, they were word filtered. Therefore, he performed the very, and acted the very things that, that God was speaking to him to do because he was constantly living in the word, not speaking the word. But living in the word would also include his speech. Let's go to Proverbs 18. Try and wrap it up here. And getting back to the idea of servanthood and speech, we've seen how powerful the tongue is, what kind of curses can come from it. And also we were able to see the blessings that can come from it as well. Jesus, I mean, it's pretty obvious. He did everything as he saw the Father doing, and he spoke what he heard the Father saying. In result of that, things that he performed were acts of liberating people through either healings in their body or revelation to their lives bringing them revelation of who he was, who his kingdom was about, what freedom was about, so they could be released from Egypt or from bondage and brought into uh, uh, the state of, of going or living in Canaan. Proverbs 18, verse 21. The tongue has the power of life and death. Those who love it will eat it's fruit. I've never been one to talk a lot, but there are times when uh, I have, and quite a bit. And I find that the more I talk, the more, the more I really have to keep in check exactly what I say when I talk a lot, because I begin to eat of its fruit, good or bad. Uh, some, you know, sometimes good and sometimes bad. But uh, man. Uh, I think Proverbs, I think not far up, uh, says a, a fool, a fool will just speak at random. A fool has no control of his tongue whatsoever. But, you know, what a wise word from a wise man is like a choice morsel. It's something that you can just chew on. It's like that good dessert your grandma cooks, you know. It's small, but, man, you could just chew on that thing for hours and it's still good. Yeah, his mouth invites a beating. Boy, I've met many of those guys. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lack of speech is wisdom <laughs> a lot of times because it's absence of foolishness. Find the tongue. Let's go back to James 3 and finish that out. 
And speaking of wisdom, verse 13, chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. Now, previously he had been talking about speech. The Pharisees, I'm, I'm sure they were long-winded, gave lots of you know, excerpts on how great the law was and how well they performed in it. He says, wait a minute, guys. It's not about what you say that makes you wise. It's also about what you do in conjunction with that. It's the fruit of your speech. Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or or deny the truth. Such so-called wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. Of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder or chaos and every evil practice. In some cases, don't be shocked, this happens in ministry. It happens in churches. What you'll find out after a period of years is that this disorder or chaos and this every evil practice isn't immediately surfaced. But after this selfish ambition begins to grow, God will eventually expose the sin for what it really is. Uh, there have been several churches where the obviously these things begin to take root and come to find out you know, there was satanic worship, there was homosexuality within the, the leadership of the church. It, it just got, it got real bad. That's why I'm always constantly in check and sober judgment of myself and filtering in the word, keeping balance in the word, so that any form in, in, in my minute uh, accounts of selfish ambition or envy is squashed. There is no competition in the body. The minute I let that seed begin to grow in me, the, that's when I'm starting to become like Miriam. I began to think that I am great. And forget that the very gift that I use to participate in any form of ministry, whether it's in fivefold or whether it's just doing something in secret on the streets, that it originated with me and not with God. Verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Like we studied last week, pure is what? The absence of anything foreign. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. This is the wisdom that comes from God. Impartial and sincere. I'll quote it over again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of performing these very things, that we fear God. And notice how each one of these are some form of a fruit that serves others. With our mouths, as we speak in wisdom, we serve others. You can serve to curse or you can serve to bless. I even go as far as, uh, there's a scripture how it says, uh, 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 brr, as you wash, you're talking about your uh, husbands love your wives, uh, speaking the word and washing her with the word or the washing of the word. Well, just as God's word washes us, of the daily junk and renews our minds, so we wash one another with our words. It's words of life as we speak to one another. Full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Every time I think of the word peacemaker, I think of the old Western gun. And, and God gave me a good revelation on that. We'll, we'll close. But the peacemaker was a symbol of authority. That means if you were to uh, go against the grain of peace, you endured the wrath of the peacemaker. <laughs> we are called to be peacemakers within God. Does that mean I'm a carpet or a rug to be trod on by every man that I come across? No. The power that we have is power against our enemy, which is not flesh and blood but it's the rulers and powers of the air. 
that as we advance God's will, we are being peacemakers to men and bringing the peace or the established rule of God's kingdom. But we do it with force and we do it with authority. Primarily, we do it with the force and authority of our tongue of advancing his will. Amen? Amen. Hope you're all blessed. Stand up.